Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. This month we've got David Blockshachter, who's Director of Business at Transit App, a lifetime public transit rider and user and one of our great guests who again lives car free. And that's what we'd really love to develop for all the cities. We talk about how ridiculous it is to end up putting a fare box into a bus which costs as much as a small bus. Also about how we have to try and figure out how to design solutions around what riders need, not just being in our silo thinking about what the agency needs on its own. Of course, we again talk about mass and who wouldn't when you're speaking with Transit App, as well as the need for open payments, what gets into bikes and multiple transit modes, and an extra bit after Boondoggle and Underdog, talking about the MBTA Charlie 2.0 mega procurement. Definitely stay tuned and let's get talking to David Blockshachter. Now, let's get talking. David Blockshachter, fantastic to have you on this month on Transit Voices. What a career. You've, you've come from MIT and taking that sort of research and, and systems approach into the MBTA at the T really changed how some of the software and, and, and system support has gone there away from everything being done outside by consultancies to building an in-house team. I know we were first engaging as Masabi with the T in those early days, our very first North American mobile ticketing, which had everybody guessing and running surveys that said, you know, one or 2% of people would use it. And then, wow, it really <laughs> changed things. But then total sideways move. We then saw you go from the MBTA on agency side over to Transit App a completely commercial organization, pure software, and then taking that organization from there are many journey planner apps and struggling to find a business model. And you have transformed it to one that not only has a business model, but is now getting really intimate with agencies and providing them with the data and decision support information that comes out of a really well-instrumented, really well-done journey planner. But I'd love to hear a bit about how you got from MIT into transit, you know, give, give us a bit of a background of, of, of what took you into this, into the wonderful world of public transit. Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a really interesting question. So I was born and bred in New York, New York City in Manhattan. Didn't know how to drive. Learned to drive actually in my 30s when my kids were born and have subsequently forgotten, which is probably better for everybody else on the roads. But I had a mid-career change. I was already almost 30, and I realized that I had no skills. Went back to grad school, went to MIT, because I realized that the only thing that I was good at was taking public transit. It's the only way that I knew how to get around. So I, I spent time there. I spent time doing research with the T. I actually joined the T for a full three months before I left and I went to Bridge, which was uh, the first microtransit startup for a couple of years ahead of its time and maybe also behind its time. And then I actually ended up at the T because we were bidding at Bridge on uh, replacing late night and low ridership service, which is something which has now become a big part of the industry, which is how do we deal with first mile, last mile? How do we make things more efficient and better for riders? That didn't end up happening. But the thing that I learned when I was at Bridge was that we were running these Mercedes Sprinter vans around Boston and they cost about $50,000. And we were bidding on this contract with the T. You'll like this story because it, it relates to fare payment. They were trying to figure out how you would pay for fare in an integrated way if you weren't running it on an MBTA 40-foot bus. And the only way they could figure out how to do it was to put a fare box 
on this Mercedes Sprinter van? Well, the problem was that the fare boxes actually cost more than the vehicle. No, um, a 50 yes. grand vehicle. Yeah, 50 grand vehicle, 50 grand fare box. Um, wow. You know, including all the installation and everything like that. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. essentially, essentially, you were putting a Mercedes Sprinter van inside of every MBTA vehicle. That couldn't be the case. And it struck me then that if you care about public transit, you can't simply say, look at all of these problems. You have to get involved. You have to be there. You have to actually change the system. And, and that's how I ended up at the T, which is, you know, how do you get there? How do you change the system? And then in terms of moving over to transit, well, it wasn't really a, a lateral or an unobvious move to me. Transit had this thing when we were at the T. We understood that anything that we put out, and, you know, we, we can talk more about it, but we built this amazing team at the T, building great technology. But the thing that we learned with each thing that we did was that if you attached the transit agency's name to it, there was a certain amount of skepticism. There isn't an assumption that public transit agencies, or let's just call it the government in general, is particularly good at technology. So if you take a look throughout all of the app stores at, at any app that's in there with very notable exceptions that prove the rule, they have between 1.2 and like 3.1 stars out of five stars. And some of that's deserved. But some of that is the association with the transit agency. Meanwhile, coming outside of it from a place like Transit App, one, it's just better. But two, because there's that moment of remove, right? This idea that you are in some sense holding the agency to account by showing real-time information, by showing journey planning, that there's this third party it's actually much more love. People, users, riders are much more accepting of innovation to some extent coming from outside of the public sector than inside of the public sector. And what I saw was the ability to latch on to this thing that had already been around at that point for five or six years, which was hugely successful. But as you said, had figured out how to make something that people love but hadn't figured out how to make something that was sustainable as a company. And that felt like a great and interesting challenge. Well, certainly there, there have been plenty of players in that space looking for a commercial model. And yeah. one of the things that keeps striking me and you bringing up the kind of trying to do it at an agency versus doing it outside and, and that different view. And I certainly have detected with public transit, there's a hygiene factor to the service of public transit. And a hygiene factor service is one that nobody says thank you for when it works, but <laughs> they complain bitterly if it doesn't work. Like yeah. the bathroom at a restaurant. You never say thank yeah. you to a restaurant for having a bathroom, but you complain like crazy if it isn't there. And that's like running the buses on time. That, that's just like table stakes for what you yeah. expect for the agency. That's like running all the buses on time, killing the minimum number of people, that's actually what we set out every day to do. That's like the gold standard. Yeah. So it'd be great if someone said thanks for that. When it comes to software like journey planning, especially multimodal yeah. journey planning, it's a very complex thing. Getting the data to the quality, getting the UI to the quality, getting the exception cases to work right and smoothing all that out. And over and over again at Masabi, we've yeah. seen procurements from transit agencies who are wanting to commission and build and own and operate and maintain and keep up to date. 
an amazing all singing, all dancing public <laughs> transit and private transit, multimodal, yeah. whatever journey planner. And think that they're then going to compete with that against uh, Google Transit app and others and keep adding to that. You're looking at them going, there are whole teams of people who are dedicated to this and not encumbered by all of these committees and funding things and everything else. They're, they're just trying to make this work and they're trying to commercialize it over multiple countries. Yeah in some cases with millions in their budgets and you get transit agencies saying, no, no, I want to have my own. I'm going to have a mass app for Madrid. And when somebody lands in Madrid airport, I'm going to pay for adverts to try and get people to install my Madrid mass app. I'm going to pay to integrate all of the local things and get these new people who've just landed here to sign up an account and put a payment detail in and everything else. I'm just scratching my head going, why do you keep reinventing the wheel? Why would you do yeah. that? Well, I mean, I understand the impulse from the government agency, right? The idea that if you were in industry and you don't control the way that people interact with your product, I get that feeling, that desire to have the control. On the other hand, there are plenty of places and ticketing and fair payment is one of them where agencies accepted that quite some time ago, that they wouldn't necessarily control all elements of the brand. For this audience talking here, I think it seems obvious that there's no way that government or for that matter, for the most part, caddy DL vendors who are selling things to government can possibly compete with an us or Google or anything like that in terms of rider experience, because they're beset by a couple of problems, one of which you mentioned is they don't have the decade of experience already doing this. They don't haven't built that technology over a decade. But two is not just funding, but consistency of funding and consistency of vision. I, you know, I spent some time at the T. We built up this team. It, it's actually now it's thrived since I've left. It's almost a hundred people focused on consumer technology. They're fantastic. But what happens five years from now? when that's no longer a priority for the agency in the same way. And they've gone through yet another funding crisis and all of a sudden they can no longer support 100 people, they can support 20 people doing it. What are you cutting? What are you not keeping up with? And I think that's really the one of the big issues. And one of the big issues when I was in government that we were trying to solve, which was how do I set something up not just to do what I'm doing right now, but something that will work five years from now under a significant amount of uncertainty about the future, right? And I think that's the hardest thing about working in government and sp specifically within a public transit agency, which is you don't know what those circumstances are going to be like over the next five or 10 or 15 years. That's yes, even more crazy is you've yeah. drawn the line at five years of uncertainty and in technology yeah. and in payments and in mobile Everybody had a million different handsets, and it was all about Nokia and BlackBerry. Yeah. Five years later, it's iPhone and Android, and that's it. Nobody would have put that in a contract. But that's yeah. just five years, and most procurement cycles are 15 years, way yeah. outside of what even a futurologist could predict is going to be next in yeah. payments or biometrics yeah. or anything else. And the idea that you would set in concrete – what you're procuring and one now in you know, a shrink wrap kind of old fashioned D-bomb is just crazy. But I think that there are other issues beside that as well. One of the biggest issues, I think, is that 
when you work within an agency and you're working for riders, you are beset by all of the internal requirements about what something needs to do, as opposed to focusing on what the rider needs, as you should be. But I think that that closeness to the agency needs, as opposed to just the rider needs, is a real disadvantage when you're building something that is ostensibly for riders. And so you end up with agencies that are building things which are very good for their marketing departments or very good for some specific component of what they're trying to accomplish, which is great. You want to do all those things, but it has to be built on the base of what is good for the riders first. And you cannot counteract that in any way or else you lose the riders' trust because you're just speaking at them rather than with them. That's a real issue that we've seen. So even if you could get past the procurement issues, the 15-year cycles, the five-year cycles, when really technology is on a one-year, two-year, three-year cycle here, I think you still would have problems. Yeah, I fully agree. When we first started working with mobile ticketing, mobile ticketing was often owned by the marketing team because yeah. it was the closest thing to websites and therefore mobile yeah. websites. And they thought, oh, yeah, yeah, let's let's give it to the, the marketing team. And the marketing team literally have their annual appraisal based on how many email addresses do you have that you can communicate with. So their whole framing for what the point of a mobile ticketing experience was, and back when we were beginning the, the whole mobile ticketing thing, pre-iPhone, this is on anti-bar phones with the nine buttons and a zero. And yeah. literally they were demanding that nobody would be allowed to buy a ticket without keying in their email address. This is in the early 2000s. And we were trying to yeah. say, why do you hate your customers? It's like <laughs> nobody, when they go to a TV vending machine, has to put in their yeah. email. So why, when yeah. we're trying to get someone to buy something on their cell phone for the first time ever, you know, they've never bought something on their cell phone for any reason, and you're trying to do this, yeah. the first thing you do is say, I want you to put in an email address and a password. And we're like, you don't put an email address and a password into a TV. <laughs> On those little flip phones when you're doing this. I mean, the that's like phone. a 20-minute endeavor. We see the same thing as what you were just describing, though. The same way that yeah. every big bus has effectively the, the spend of a sprinter van in the cash box. We also yeah. find that you could just say, right, what my customers need me to have more buses and more frequency. How do I deliver that? And then you go internally and it's like, what we really want is a bus that's exactly like the existing bus and has some parts commonality. And so you end up going out and procuring this thing, which is so custom yes. that instead of buying a bus for 150 grand, you end up with a bus for yeah. 250 grand because it has to be yeah. exactly right for your internal processes. But in the US, you know, the federal government pays 90% of the capital cost of that bus. So, you know, it, it makes sense as a financial decision to continue to do that, even if it's ridiculous. Having the capital budget appear like it's free and also encouraging people that if you don't use your capital budget, it looks like you don't need it is yeah. again and again, again, making people think, oh, I'm just going to capitalize it. I'm going to own all this software. That's great. I have IP. Like, what am I going to yeah. do with the IP? Mike DeVito was saying this. You know, they they argued to have software IP, never used it because they had no capability internally to do anything with it. But it cost them so much time and money to get. And it, it is this kind of how do you refocus on what we really need to deliver for the consumer rather than yeah. 
replicating things that care and feed for how we used to do things in the agency. And I think one of the elements you spoke about at the beginning about looking at big buses running in low density transit areas late at night, mostly empty once every hour or two, instead of either on demand or subsidized ride hail or something else, which for less spend might deliver better frequency, might deliver actually getting people to where they want to be, safer and more on time. And then redeploying that staff everywhere else. Onto main corridors, onto high-density routes, and saying, oh, yeah, we'll give you a subsidized Uber to get you to the high-density route, but that's how I want you in and out of the city. I don't want Ubers coming in and out of the city. No way. I want Ubers getting you to the BRT terminal, and then you come. The answer for the last, what, seven years has been mass. This vision of this is as meaning this specific thing, like this super app, one app, one account, maybe even a subscription that does everything. I think that there's two parts of that, right? Is that what riders actually want? It may be, maybe not. There's some issues with that. Who owns the brand, the stuff that we were just talking about? You can have private labels where you convince riders to try and download an app. We know the struggles that that's been, you know, you count them. If you look in Brussels, you know, there's a there's a new traffic app. Their target is to have 25,000 MAUs, monthly active users, by December of 2024. So more than a year from now. And that's uh, compared to how much it costs to put that in place. Just give all those 20,000 people free travel. What I looked at was if you take a look at how many users Transit app has in a place like New York, it's millions millions of active users. That's, you know, a hundred times as many. How do you justify that kind of investment? What we look for there and what we've spent a lot of time on, is there a hybrid model? Is there a hybrid model that allows agencies to combine things in an intelligent way, but you don't lose all of that struggle convincing riders to download a new app? I mean, imagine going to a new city and like all of a sudden you have to find the taxi app, if you want to take a taxi or if you have to find this. I mean, that was the success of something like an Uber, which is you do it once, you build up a global brand and we try not to do the bad parts of it, but you have that global brand. But if you can partner and you can combine the global brand with the local brand into one solution, then I think you really get something. I mean, that's what that's what we've been doing together for a while with Transit and Masabi with our various partnerships. For people that yeah. haven't heard about this, basically, yeah. Masabi do the underguts of fare collection for an agency so they can do tapping bank cards, mobile phones, smart cards, yeah. bit of cash and everything else. But instead of guarding that in a walled garden where the only way you can access that is through an agency ticket vending machine and an agency smart card and an agency app, we provide that Lego brick for other people to yeah. integrate into their apps and experiences. So that Lego brick can be used by different convenience store networks to retail cash and top-ups, and it can be used by different mobile apps elsewhere to plug in ticketing. But as you say, it's this hybrid. It's it's not controlled completely by the transit authority. Absolutely. but and, and I think that there's like a deep question here of who owns the stack. And there's been this idea, I think, from the public sector in particular, but from some private sector players as well, that one company needs to own the entire stack. They need to 
do fare payment. They need to do trip planning. They need to do on-demand transit. They need to do bike share and car share. They need to do et cetera. And you end up with all the problems that always happen when one place owns the entire stack. You get vendor lock-in where you've got one vendor who can only do it and you're going to only play by their pace of innovation, which generally isn't going to be great. And you're not going to open yourself to what comes next. This thing that we've been doing together and that you do with other folks and that we do with other folks, because this is the way the world should work, is that you integrate all these different offerings, whether through SDKs or APIs into one place. And that means that Transit can integrate a Masabi, but so can the Metro North app, a publicly built app. We can, as app developers, you have to build a support for that particular feature set, but it works so much better when you can have all of these different players. And not that I ever like to think that we're replaceable or that you're replaceable, but God forbid we stop doing a good job in delivering riders. I want the public agency to have the ability to replace us. And that's what we allow. We're giving that agency a much better ability to hold us to account and therefore to deliver for their riders rather than this all-in-one set that either they build themselves or they pay someone else to build. I think that really touches on that five-year comment earlier. Seeing five years into the future is hard for an agency to procure because they're trying to procure with investments that run longer than that. What we have seen in in journey planners is that the favorite app in certain cities comes and goes. There will be a new set of features, for example, diversions and rerouting and things to wake you up when you're getting to your stop. And because of that new feature, this app goes into ascendancy for a two or three year period in that area. But then if somebody else innovates and has something that's now part of Google glass or whatever it is that's a new hype thing it's not the government that has to re you know reinvest <laughs> yeah. for that that can flow with lots of other different players and the main thing is if the transit agencies and the ride hail providers the underlying mobility providers if they've provided their lego bricks their apis up to multiple places they're meeting the rider where the rider is and if the rider is going through apple maps and that's their go-to yeah. place, then that's where you should be. If they are going through their American Airlines app, then yeah. maybe that's where we should be. If they're someone who is a transit native, they are someone who feels that they use public transit regularly and they want something very dedicated to public transit, not a general mapping app, they're going to have something like Transit App. And Mass is not an app. Mass is more of a city where public and private mobility work really well so that you can live a car-optional life. Absolutely. Look, let's take another transportation example. Let's take flying as an example. There's no super app for flying. There's no one app. You use an app for booking. You're going to use us or Uber or someone else to get to the airport. There's going to be something for border crossing. There's going to be something for your boarding pass. I don't think that the user experience is worse there. You can think of instances where it could be. You can think of an instance where I had to get into an Uber And I had to use one app to book the Uber and a different app to pay for the Uber and a third app to review the driver at the end. That would be a frustrating experience. Mm -hmm. But I think when you have these different modalities, I think that people expect it. Each app has its own evolving feature set, right? It responds to a specific need. As you said, if you are someone who drives most of the time and occasionally takes public transit, you should go use Google Maps or Apple. If you're someone who mostly takes public transit, 
their feature set probably isn't going to be the right one for you. It's fine. Sometimes these apps link to each other. Sometimes they even have deeper integrations, whether it's on the back end or the front end, like we talked about. And this is, you know, kind of what we've done as a whole. So for something like ticketing, when it's mobile ticketing as a core part of the experience, it really required Masabi in transit or, or Masabi in X, Y, and Z to have this deep integration, right? Where it's built in. When you're in the app, there's a ticket bar at the bottom of the screen that's always there. And if you've got a ticket, it shows it so you can hit it with one button. But the core thing that you're trying to do is to get from A to B, right? The core thing here was to take ticketing out of the problem because ticketing is never going to be something that people love. People aren't like, oh my God, I bought a transit ticket. It was the best possible experience. Like the best thing that ticketing can do is to get the hell out of the way. And that's the amazing thing about, you know, the wallets. And that's the amazing thing about open payments is it completely gets out of the way. And mobile ticketing went a huge part of the step here. But as we begin to have more agencies, as the TFL open payments experience cycles through the industry, and it's what, about 20% of the way there, but you've got this large area that isn't just the big agencies, which are slowly catching up, but all of the midsize and smaller agencies, as you guys and others begin to introduce open payments there, that really opens up the experience because it's the best possible experience. I love our mobile ticketing experience together. I love what you guys have built, but it's so much better if you never open an app, right? If you do the stuff that you're building now, which is open payments. Yeah, I, I remember a while ago saying the uh, there were a whole bunch of apps and websites who rated their success on how many minutes a day some user would be on your app and they wanted to make that bigger and bigger and bigger like Facebook. And we said, we're the opposite. If we can get yes. people where they want to go in the city and they open the app for zero seconds a day, yeah, it doesn't matter whether that's been done magically by an app in their pocket quietly or it's been done through their face or a chip in their Nike trainer or whatever the hell it is. If they've not had to interact with it and they get where they want to go, that's perfect. And every second we force them to do something in the app is a failure by us that we haven't simplified it enough. So it's like, how do we remove nag screens? How do we avoid passwords? And again, yeah. it's agencies that have forced us to have usernames and passwords. We never wanted yeah. to have usernames and passwords. There are original yeah. apps on candy bar phones had no usernames and passwords. And it's like, yeah, we, we want zero clicks we want no time and if you're going to hide it inside somebody else's app that they were going to open anyway to try and figure out how they get from a to b let's hide the ticketing inside that flow because they've already said where they're going it's already shown them their options if it can show them the price take the money that's great and if this bit of the journey they're tapping their bank card or the ride hail takes the money invisibly we don't need it to be magically joined up by a mass single transaction i don't think that's where the friction is I have seen, and you've seen it too, cities, the, the, the most amazing thing that I've seen over the last decade, as someone who doesn't bike, I walk and I take public transit, I don't drive. But the most amazing thing that I've seen is the transformation of our cities to allow for transport that isn't motorized, for people to get around on bikes, for families to get around on bikes. I've got two kids, almost teenagers, you know, wish me luck. The most amazing thing that I have seen with them is now that they can ride their bikes around the city, we're building, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there's so many bike lanes that have been built over the course of the last 10 years from Cambridge into Boston, into Somerville, all the surrounding communities. And it creates this freedom of movement 
for everybody. That's not something that I even had. You know, I had the subway growing up in Manhattan, but you couldn't ride your bike in Manhattan then. But now you can. Yes, there's a lot of people in the bike lanes and some of them are going the wrong way. And my mother will continue to complain about all of those things. And, and she's right about all of them. You have etiquette that needs to be developed. But the ability to move around without a car, I think, is the defining part of the urban experience now and, and the changing urban experience. And I think it's the thing when we talk, especially post-pandemic or wherever we are, about Will cities continue to thrive as the hub of innovations, given the lack of people having to go into downtown five days a week, like all of those things? And I think the thing that allows them to thrive is that you can live without a car. I think that the freedom of living without a car is really the most impressive innovation that we can put out there. And everything that we do at Transit is really based on that, is how do we make cities better for people who don't get around with a car, whether that's by choice, which I'm lucky enough to make, or whether that's not necessarily by choice, but because they're constrained in that way. We do a survey every quarter of all the people who use the app. We get about 30,000, 40,000 responses a quarter. And one of the questions that we ask, we have some lots of questions about public transit, et cetera. One of the questions we ask them is, do you own a car? And it's less than 20% of people who use our app own a car. Wow. Then we ask them, do you want a car? More than 50% of the people who don't have a car want a car. And why do they want to own a car? Because they think it will make their life easier. And they're not wrong. What we need to do as a whole, and we're trying to do a little bit of this at transit, but we're a small part of this equation, is how do we make it so that those people who don't own a car but want one because they see that it will make their life better no longer need to have that desire? Their lives aren't limited. The places that they can go, the jobs that they have opportunities aren't limited because they don't have a car. That's the challenge that I think we're all facing. It's not, how do I get more people to take public transit? Um, or how do I get more people to bike? It's how do I get it so that people don't feel they need to own a car to access economic, social, et cetera, opportunities? Well, certainly there are journeys which a private car does very well. Having lived <laughs> in London, and I, I expect in, uh, in Boston and New York as well, where you've got really easy to access fleet shared cars. So yeah. what we had was Zipcar, a car near me and other sort of things. Because we didn't have to chew through going through a hire company, filling out paperwork, having them tell me that the, yeah. the chip on the windscreen is my fault and everything else is joyous about giving a yeah. hire car back. Just be able to blip a card on the windscreen, get the car for a few hours, go to the hardware store, get the big stuff and then bring it back. That was great. And it meant while living in those cities where there were plenty of variety of sizes and types of vehicle to be had on demand, yeah. there was never a feeling that my life would be easier if I owned a car. No, I can yeah. get the appropriate size vehicle when I need it and spend the rest of my time using shared mobility. And even yeah. in my areas where the Masabi offices are in London, you now got these electric cargo bikes. So that those of us who yeah. an extra kick out of transporting a new uh, a tumble dryer, washing machine, or a, a sofa on a bicycle can get that and then take that to wherever we need to yeah. go. But point-to-point -point car sharing is amazing. Look, cars are really useful things. They just didn't necessarily be owned by people in cities. 
I think the goal, the thing that we kind of hang our hat on is that we listen to the people who use the app. We ride public transit. We take bicycles. We take ride hail. We do all of the things in the app. We use it each and every day. And so the goal of what we're doing, right, we're essentially a digital intermediary, is that we're there to remove things like the uncertainty, the confusion, just the general kind of giddiness of being a public transit rider, being someone who gets around without a car and is to some extent treated like a, a second-class citizen. To deal with that, to improve the cities, to improve the lives of the people who live in them, we need to work with the folks who are at the transit agencies, who are at the bike share companies, to make it better, right? No one goes in to the public transit industry. No one goes into the public sector and works at a public transit agency because they're like, look, what I'd really like to do is I'd like to join a lumbering bureaucracy weighed down by years of neglect. And I'd like to really focus on just moving vehicles first and people only incidentally. Each and every person at a public transit agency, each and every person who runs bike share, each all of those people, they took the job because they love their city and because they want to improve it. And over the years, they've been beaten down by the system, by this system which is designed to take risk out. That's what we want our government agencies to do. We don't want them to take these huge risks. We want them to be relatively risk-free. That's changing now. I mean, the new generation of transit CEOs coming in, especially post-COVID, they're reframing what they need to defend in terms of what they're doing. And it's not operations as it was before. They're also the new generation of transit CEOs ride on transit. Sounds crazy, but many of the executive level people at transit agencies we met 10 years ago weren't transit users. Now it's more than just a couple of fun rides every year. People are actually getting to use it more. And it's more like people at Transit and at Masabi who are lifetime transit users. But the CEOs aren't enough. It's everyone else at the agency too, right? A CEO, as much as I count a number of them as my friends, they come and go from these positions, especially the ones who are there to make change as opposed to simply be there. And it's really everybody else at the agencies. And what we've learned, and this is one of the major changes at Transit that we've made since I've been there, what we've learned is that they don't have the tools to understand how riders are actually feeling. They don't have that ability to know what rider sentiment is. You see them and they do a survey once a year, once every five years, once every 10 years. The best of them do it once every six months on how their riders are feeling and how do they do it. They go out there and they they have an intern or a set of interns or a company that they've hired if they've got the money with a clipboard and a pen and they interview a couple hundred people and that's how riders feel about the agency the only other set of feedback that they get is the customer service line or the emails that are complaining about something as you said as hygiene one of the things that we've spent a lot of time focusing on and it feels very much like a through line from what i was doing when i was at the t as well is How do we actually meaningfully engage with the people who are using the system? Not once a year or once every five years, and not from just the people who complain, but from the people, the 95% of people who 
on their daily journey have nothing go wrong. Nothing is bad. Nothing is great. They just got to work. They just went to school. They just did their grocery the, shopping. The, the silent majority, the happy majority who don't feel strongly enough to appear on any survey or complaint site because it's just what you expected to happen. Exactly. How do you listen to them? How do you actually hear what they want? This is you know, one of the main things want... you expose to the agencies through the Royale product, is that they get far more visibility on what's going on in their area. It's Royale, but it's also this thing that we call Rate My Right. So with Royale, we're going to give you movement data. And movement data is great, but you don't use it that often, is the dirty circuit. When you do like a network redesign, when you do those sorts of planning, it comes in super, super useful. But most of the time, it doesn't affect your day-to-day operations, as opposed to all of the people who ride. So we have this thing which we call Rate My Ride. So we've got this Go feature in transit, which basically you press it and it'll tell you, hey, time to leave your house. It's going to track your entire bus. Oh, time to hurry up. You know, you're, you're going to miss the bus. When you get on the bus, it'll tell you, hey, you're two stops away. You're one stop away. Time to get off so that you can zone out and scroll TikTok or whatever, you know, take a nap, whatever it is that you want to do on the bus. It, it makes it better. It means with ticketing that if people open the app, press this button and close it, and they never have to look at the app again. And that is our ideal experience, right? Because it's not like we don't have a model unlike some of the companies where we're selling you advertising. So we want you to see our app. We don't have advertising. We don't have ad trackers. Like it doesn't fit our business model. And that's very intentionally designed because we don't want that incentive to get you to engage with the app for 11 minutes a day. We want you to never engage with the app except to open it, see where your bus is, hit go, close it. We'll take you the rest of the way. But the great thing about Go is that users are both representing themselves as the vehicle once they get on board the vehicle, which means that they are then giving real-time updates of that vehicle status every second to everyone else looking to get on board that vehicle. So it improves the experience for everyone. But because of that, we know when someone is waiting at the bus stop, when someone gets on board the bus, when someone is two stops away, and we can ask them questions at the appropriate time. So when they're waiting at the bus stop, we can ask them, hey, is there a shelter? Is there a bench? Is there shade? Is it clean or dirty? Or do you feel safe? And that's already, because you're not doing anything, that's already tied to what bus I'm getting on, what stop I'm at, the route that I'm taking, even the vehicle number, which means that this is all of this data that then transit agencies can use. This is going to help to target one of the most important technological interventions that I think we need to do for most cities. This is a great new technology. It really helps people to live car-free and make the best out of public transit. It's called a sidewalk. And it's like a safe refuge that human beings can use when they're traveling around. Space is normally full of the private automobile in their natural environment. The second one is called a bench. The bench. I I I think I'd still crazy. It's a crazy new thing. Crazy Crazy new new technology. Before we run out of time, we have a couple of questions I'd love to ask you about your your pick of idea, boondoggle and underdog. It doesn't have to be technology. It can just be a transit idea or something. But yeah. Pick out the thing that you think, uh, the boondoggle, which is swallowing up all the investment and oxygen in the room, and we really should stick back on the shelf for a bit longer. It's not technology, but it's related to technology. It is the split shift for bus drivers. There is a huge crisis, mostly in the US and Canada, but really globally, 
that people are having a hard time, that agencies are having a hard time hiring enough bus drivers. They've gone through, you know, do we give them a bonus? How do we advertise it to more places? How do we make people think that working at a transit agency is a good job? And bus driver is a great job, especially for someone who doesn't have, you know, a lot of education. You know, it's one of the last good paying blue collar jobs that comes with a pension. But it also is horrible for the drivers because until you get to a certain level of seniority and even then because of the traditional peakedness you know with the morning and afternoon or evening peak of public transit you need a lot more vehicles and a lot more drivers for two sets of two to three hours a day and so most drivers are driving a couple of hours, three to four hours in the morning, and then a number of hours of break, and then they're doing it again. That is a horrible way to live. That is a horrible way to work. And it's all there in the name of efficiency. How do we save a few bucks? If you take a look at the trends post-pandemic, you see that the peaks are a lot less peaky and the interior of the days are actually getting a lot more travel. That's great news. It means that we can move from these split shifts that we've always had drivers do to something that is more even. So a driver can operate for eight hours with a normal hour to break in the middle of the day because driving a bus is a hard, 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 hard job. Probably the hardest job in public transit is driving a bus. And so split shifts are this boondoggle in the name of efficiency that we've been beset by for the last 40 years and especially, what do they say? Never waste a good crisis. Well, we've had a pretty good crisis these last couple of years. Now it's time not to waste it and to get rid of split diffs and start hiring drivers to work normal days. You know, maybe it'll start at 4 a.m. and end at noon because you need people to drive the bus at 4 a.m. But having that four to six hour break in the middle of the day, it's time to let that go. Fantastic. So that's your boondoggle. What about your underdog? What, what would you say is something we need to do more of? Uh, again, not a technology one. I love technology, but I don't think technology is the underdog. Investing in staff capability. And I don't mean the various different trainings that people go to for two to four hours once every four years. I mean that transit agency staff have two core pieces that they haven't been given. One is they haven't been given any management training. The number of agency staff who have had even the most perfunctory things like a performance review over the course of a 20-year career, maybe you'll get to the idea of regular one-on-one feedback, which is something that between you and me, you wouldn't think of having an employee who you weren't regularly giving one-on-one feedback to listen to what they had to hear and to be able to give them feedback. That doesn't exist at transit agencies. There's just no culture of people-focused management. And so bringing that kind of management capability into transit agencies, not just at the CEO level, but all throughout, I think is like that underdog, is that thing that we need so much more of. And the second part of that, which is lesser, but still really important, training on procurement. Most people who go into a procurement at a transit agency, it is their first time ever going into that procurement. And so they're relying on a particular set of staff who mostly have capabilities to buy the things that transit agencies buy all of the time. And the thing that they buy all of the time are wheels and nuts and buses and all of these things. It's not technology. 
And I don't think the problem is that the people want non-outcome oriented procurement and they want to think about the inputs. It's that they're taking a lesson from everything else and it's the wrong lesson. The thing that I felt like I spent the most time learning when I was at a transit agency was how to procure things and how to procure things intelligently. Asking questions of the professionals that I was working with of why does this matter? And I got lucky enough that I had a number of people that I worked with on the procurement team who are willing to sit with me for hours and hours and answer numerous insipid, ridiculous questions of why do we need this? Why do we need this? Why do we need this again and again and again to get to the right outcome? And I feel like if we do not empower transit agency staff and they don't have the training to be able to do that, you know, it requires somebody who is just monomaniacal to get a procurement through that doesn't have ridiculous requirements in it. If we can train staff better on what their possibilities are and what's required versus not required and what makes sense for certain kinds of procurements, I think we'll end up with much better outcomes because procuring is a core part of what transit agencies do. It doesn't matter if you're in marketing or in bus operations or in the IT department, you are going to end up buying something from someone else. And transit agencies only buy things through procurement. They don't have credit cards. And if we don't train people how to do that part of their job, then what do we expect them to do? Well, like it's not a surprise that so many of the procurements that you and I have seen come across our desk. You look at it and you're like, who wrote this thing? Like, how is this even possible to fulfill? Um, so that's that's my underdog. I'm definitely behind you on training people on procurement and, and figuring out every extra page is extra cost. I'm trying to teach them how to write a short letter. I think, uh, is, is it Roosevelt or someone? Uh, sorry about the uh, long yeah. letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. And it's, exactly. Uh, yep. Asking the whys, boiling it down to what you really need. Uh, that's a, a fantastic underdog. Can I ask you, though, how do you feel about the Charlie 2.0 project now it's awarded? Look, the idea behind the project was a couple fold. There was uh, working with a vendor who both parties hadn't done a great job in managing the relationship over 10 years with the first Charlie card. It was a relationship that was not working out and it needed a new solution because there were some very basic issues at play. Um, which were well reported at the time. We decided to go and have the procurement, which was a totally different kind of procurement, right? It wasn't like we're going to buy software, we're going to do this. We, we did a public-private partnership. The idea was that you get capital dollars in there. And because of those capital dollars in there and because of the structure, there would be not a dollar that came from the public agency until the system was up and running. And so the only thing that you had to do was make sure that it met a certain set of requirements to get up and running, and then you'd be able to operate it and they'd be responsible for operating it and get a stream of OPEX payments and a stream of CAPEX payments, capital and operating payments over the course of a set of years. And the idea was that it would align all of those incentives. And so you'd get it fast and you'd get it good, but you wouldn't necessarily get it cheap. That was the concept of AFC 2.0 of, of the of the next Charlie card system. And there were a lot of other ways that it could have been done, but politically, for a lot of other reasons, that was the only way. That was how you kind of navigated the streets to get a system that, that needed to happen. And the goal was everything that we've been talking about. How do I abstract payments? How do I get rid of payments as a problem? How do we move to 
all door boarding at the same time so that a fair payment system can actually speed up buses. Oh my God, a fair payment system could speed up buses. That would be the best thing that we could do for consumers. So that was the whole point. It hasn't gone to plan. Some of that is probably because the plan wasn't, didn't take, you know, some things into account. Some of it is because the world changed in the interim. Big piece of that was how do you make the fare system the core of how public transit can manage this panoply of other services that are out there? How do you keep the government involved in making sure that, you know, as you said earlier, for a late night service, we can send an Uber out there. Wouldn't it be nice if you could pay for that through your Charlie card and have it be subsidized through your Charlie card rather than anything else? So the whole idea was that you build these interoperable APIs on either side so you could bring stuff out and push it out. I'm not sure that that was as important as we thought it was. And I think by requiring some of those APIs and other pieces of that, it made the project more complicated than it otherwise should have. There were other parts of that project that made it more complicated that I blame myself mostly for as part of that project um, because I spent all of my life on that privacy. And that's a whole, we'll have to talk for another hour about that. But there were some very new privacy requirements, which I continue to think are super, super important, but which no existing fair collection vendor had done. And so we were trying to push the industry there, right? And when you do a procurement, 95% of what you try and do from the public sector, when you're doing it right, is specify things that already exist. 5% is specify things that should exist. That 5% that we specified was probably bigger than the 5% that we thought it was. It was probably too much and it made the project more difficult. And then you hit pandemic supply chain problems. And quite frankly, and this includes from the time I was there, probably less than enough attention paid to the project over the course of, God, seven years since it was awarded. It was supposed to go live four years ago. It is now just getting into the testing phases. You cannot call the project a success by any mean, shape, or form because of that. But I'm still hopeful that, you know, with a lot of work that's been done, that it will form the basis for the last fare collection system that the T ever needs. Because it has the ability for open payments, because it has those APIs in and out, you shouldn't have to go out and replace your vendor again because the fare collection system shouldn't be that complicated. Now, will that be the case? Who knows what the technology looks like in 15 years, as we've been talking about for you know the last little bit. But it has not been a success so far. But I am still hopeful that I can walk outside my house and I don't have to worry about whether I have $2 on my Charlie card so I can get on the bus, that I can just tap my card and go or tap my phone and go. I'm I am hopeful that we will get there soon. Fingers crossed. Well, let's see what comes in the coming year. Thank you so much for coming in today, David. It's been fascinating and yeah, fully agree with everything you've said on the uh, Boondoggle and Underdogs and look forward to meeting up with you again in the new year. Thank you so much to David for joining us today on Transit Voices. I certainly learned a lot, especially about split shifts, which hopefully won't be needed so much now that we have more smooth travel patterns post-COVID. The lessons from Charlie 2.0 as a procurement really show how some small requirements can turn the whole project into a customization running over budget and over time. But the ambition for a designed in privacy to prevent any abuse of that public data for targeting minor criminal infractions rather than just being used against major 
criminal events is something we should all be very aware when we're designing digital systems. Do subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future episodes of Transit Voices, and I will see you all after a great Christmas. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.